Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. On October 7th, Hamas terrorists massacred hundreds of Israeli civilians in southern Israel near the Gaza border. Many Hamas sympathizers believed that these mass killings were justified. But the rest of us saw it as a horrendous evil. As a philosopher, I would say that a part of the evil was that the natural or human rights of the victims were violated. These natural rights were violated to the extent that innocent human life was destroyed. The atrocities of October 7th are not the topic of my talk tonight, but they are necessarily connected to my topic, which is natural rights. By understanding natural rights, we will be able to understand precisely why what was done in Israel was evil and why we should be outraged by it. Now, let me point out that in making these comments, I'm, I'm not taking a position on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict in general. That's a very complex matter. Um, I'm only stating my position on this particular episode of it. So let me begin by saying something about what a right is in general. A right as an attribute of a person is the license to do, to demand, or to possess something. That's what a right is in general. For many of us, the political regimes in which we live confer upon us rights thus understood. Amendments to our American Constitution, for example, grant us the right to vote, which is a right to do something, the right to trial by jury, which is a right to demand something, and the right to bear arms, which is a right to possess something. Philosophers and jurists call rights of the sort granted to us by the US Constitution positive rights. A positive right is a right that is conferred upon me by other human beings. We could also call those uh, conventional rights or rights by convention. Many people claim, and I am one of them, that besides positive rights, there are also such things as natural rights. These are rights that are implied in some way by our human nature. For this reason, they can also be called human rights. So I'm saying that natural rights and, and human rights are interchangeable terms. They, they both refer to the same thing, or at least they can both refer to the same thing. 
these are, uh, these are rights, oh, excuse me, pro proponents of natural rights, and here are, again I include myself, hold that positive rights should be based on natural rights. So, for example, the rights that are given to us by our Constitution, if they're, if they're going to have any solidity, any, any real foundation, they should rest on what I'm calling and what the, the philosophical tradition calls natural rights or human rights. So whatever constitutional rights I have, for example, should be such that they can be traced back to natural rights. Notice that I do not say that they must correspond directly to natural rights. Now this is an important point. I'm not saying, for instance, that if I have a constitutional right to vote, it is because I have a natural right to vote. For a, for a constitutional right to vote to be based on a natural right, it must only be the case that some natural right that I have could imply a right to vote um, in a given circumstance. How natural rights translate into positive rights will in many cases depend, okay, <laughs> For um, how natural rights translate into positive rights will in many cases depend on particular historical contexts. Assuming this, we can expect that the relationship between natural rights and positive rights will shift to some extent over time and across political and legal regimes. My primary focus in this paper will be on natural rights. We can discuss its implication for positive rights further during the Q&A. What I propose to do is offer you an account of the nature and existence of natural rights. In doing this, I will be guided by the doctrine of natural rights developed in the Aristotelian Thomistic tradition. Although you will not find an expressly developed doctrine of natural rights in Aristotle's or in St. Thomas Aquinas' texts, you will find principles in them in their texts from which such a doctrine can be and has been developed by their followers in the past few centuries. A doctrine of natural rights can be derived from St. Thomas's doctrine of natural law, which has its basis in its, um, in his, I'm sorry, which has its basis in his concepts of human nature and the human good, concepts which are largely Aristotelian. So to offer you an account of the nature and existence of natural rights, I will first need to talk about human nature and the human good, and then about natural law. Those will be the first two parts of my paper. In the third part, I will show you how natural rights can be derived from natural law. Um, and then in a previous version of this paper, I also um, considered and responded to some objections, but um, I don't want to try your patience um, too much tonight, so I'm going to try to make this a little briefer than, than it was in, um, in, in previous versions. Um, but if I am very happy to entertain and respond to uh, objections to what I present here during the q and I'm sure you'll be um, prepared to offer those objections. So again, the, the first part of my paper will be on human nature and the human good. The second part will be on natural law. And then the third part will be on natural rights. And as, as I hope, I'll, I'll be able to show, show you each, each of these, um, in a way, is, is built upon the other. So we have 
human nature and the human good as, as sort of the foundation. Natural law is built upon that, and then natural rights are, are built upon um, natural law. But it all goes back to human nature and human good. So part one, human nature and the human good. We use the term good in various ways. Here by good, I will mean what is fulfilling. This corresponds to one of the common ways that we use the term. I take something to be good because I find it fulfilling. In other words, it satisfies a desire that I have. We could say then that the good is what is desirable or what we want or pursue. This is also how St. Thomas understands the good. The notion of goodness, he tells us, this is a quote, consists in this, that it is in some way desirable, end quote. He notes that this is likewise how Aristotle understands the good and quotes the beginning of the Nicomachean Ethics, where Aristotle says that the good is what all things desire. Now, you may suspect that there is something wrong here. Are St. Thomas, Aristotle, and I saying that everybody everywhere wants what is good? And if that is what we are saying, aren't we terribly wrong? After all, don't some people, even many people, want things that are bad? Some people want to defraud other people or kill innocent people or break promises. It does not seem to be a given then that everybody wants what is good, or so you might object. That is a perfectly reasonable objection, and responding to it will allow me to make an important qualification. When I say, along with St. Thomas and Aristotle, that the good is what we desire, what I am saying, and what they are saying too, is that we desire what appears to be good to us, that is, what we desire, uh, or that is, we desire it because it appears fulfilling for us. As St. Thomas puts it, whatever we desire, we desire sub ratione boni, under the aspect of good, right? So in order for me to want it, it has to at least appear to me to be good. Otherwise, I can't want it. If, there were truly, if it were truly good, then it would not only apparently fulfill us, but truly fulfill us, right? So if it's not just apparently good, not only will it... Um, apparently fulfill me, it will truly fulfill me. So some things could appear to be good for us even though they aren't truly good for us, while others could not only appear to be good, but also truly be good for us. So suppose for a moment that you were truly and completely fulfilled such that there was nothing more that you desired. This would be a state of perfection. I say this because we consider something perfect if it lacks nothing that it should have. Because knives are meant for cutting, a perfect knife is one not lacking in sharpness. Because triangles are supposed to have three sides, a perfect triangle wouldn't lack any of its sides. If we were to have all the goods that we should have, true goods, then we would be perfect. But this is also what we understand happiness to be. It is a state of complete fulfillment or perfection. But this is also what we understand 
I'm sorry. Um, from these considerations, we can say that any true good perfects us. If not absolutely, then at least to some extent, and that it therefore contributes to our happiness. So if, if something truly fulfills me, it thereby perfects me, and because of that, it contributes to my happiness. Aristotle and St. Thomas agree that goods and what we desire, as what we desire, have the character of goals or ends. Thus, they often use the terms good and end interchangeably. Good and end, says St. Thomas, this is another quote, have the same ratio or character or aspect, since the good is that which all desire. The more technical term that Aristotle and St. Thomas use for end is final cause. So they regard final causes, too, as having the character of goods. But let's return to the question of apparent goods and true goods. How do we determine whether something is truly good for us? That's a million, million dollar question, right? What can we look to to figure this out? One necessary, even if not sufficient, criterion is our own nature, human nature. It already points us in a certain direction. It already aims us, so to speak, at certain goods, things that are fulfilling for us. As living beings, things like adequate food, shelter, and so on are good for us. As dependent beings in many respects, stable functional communities, namely families and political communities, are good for us. As intelligent beings, truth is good for us. Concretely, that would mean that education is good for us. Because our nature directs us to all these goods, we will call them natural goods. So all these are natural goods. They are goods that our, our human nature directs us or aims us toward. So they fulfill us as human beings. But this is not yet a complete list of natural goods. No good that isn't itself absolutely perfect will ever totally satisfy us. Our best friend may be an exceptional person in many ways, but may also have certain downsides. Habitual lateness, forgetfulness, personal hygiene issues, etc. Because of these defects in our friend, our friendship will be somewhat fulfilling, but not completely fulfilling. But from a good course in metaphysics, we would learn that no finite being could ever, all on its own, be absolutely perfect in the sense that it stood in need of nothing that it didn't already possess. Whatever is absolutely perfect would depend upon nothing outside itself. But every finite being depends for its existence on a network of other beings. This tells us that the only absolutely perfect being must be infinite, right? So if every finite being depends on a network of other beings, and if to be absolutely perfect is not to be dependent on anything else, and only an infinite being can be absolutely perfect. But an absolutely perfect and infinite being is what we mean by God. If no finite being can ever totally satisfy us, and only an absolutely perfect and infinite being can, then only God can totally satisfy us. But otherwise, only in God can we find complete happiness. This is what St. Augustine is getting at when he says, 
to God at the beginning of his confessions, in quietum es cor nostrum donec rescuat, rescuat in te. Our heart is restless until it rests in you. God is our ultimate, ultimate end. If this is true, then we would have to add God to our list of natural goods. In fact, we would have to put him at the top of the list. From a good course in metaphysics, we would learn not only that God is our supreme natural good, but, but that we owe our very existence and nature to God, and that he is the intelligent, free, omniscient, omnipotent, and provident principle of the universe. If God is our supreme natural good, and there are other attributes also belonging to him, then God should be the object of worship. I'm sorry, and these other attributes also belong to him, then God should be the object of worship and the addressee of prayer. In short, we should cultivate religion. If God is a free creator of our existence and nature, then the goods toward which our nature directs us are goods that God himself wills us to pursue. So what I'm saying here is that those goods that are fulfilling, naturally fulfilling for us as human beings are ordained as such by God, right? So to, to live in accord with our nature is to live in accord with God's will, if he is our creator. Evidently, no atheist would accept these several theses about God and our relationship to him. And I would not expect them to, certainly not without an argument. Although justifying arguments can be provided, this is not the occasion to provide them. But it is important to note that St. Thomas would claim that we can know the truth of these theses by reason and that they are not, in principle, a matter of faith, even if they can be supernaturally revealed and accepted on faith. Here, however, I can only present them as stipulations. If God is our supreme natural good or ultimate end, as I have said, then there is a hierarchy among our natural goods. That is, some will be greater, of greater value than others. After God, we could put the cultivation of knowledge, and then the formation and maintenance of stable functional communities, and finally self-preservation. If there is such a hierarchy of natural goods, it doesn't necessarily entail that we should forsake the lower natural goods and focus only on pursuing the higher ones. If we totally ne neglect the lower natural goods, it will become difficult to pursue the higher ones. Poor physical health, for example, will make it hard for me to be an active participant in the communities to which I belong. If the communities to which I belong are not stable or functional, then that will make it hard for me to pursue knowledge or a relationship with God. So we should not simply neglect the lower natural goods, but order our pursuit of them to our pursuit of the higher ones. In other words, we should pursue them for the sake of the higher ones. So what I'm saying here is that there is a hierarchy of natural goods. And just because some good is, is at sort of toward the bottom or at the bottom of the hierarchy doesn't mean that we should, should ignore it. What we need to see is that these lower natural goods, if we pursue them in the proper way, we, pursue them, we will be pursuing them in such a way that they help us to get to those higher natural goods. The natural goods that I have been discussing may truly fulfill us, but I can't choose to pursue things, but I, um, 
I'm sorry, this is, this is a question actually. The, the natural goods that I have been discussing may truly fulfill us, but can't I choose to pursue things that are at odds with what naturally fulfills me? Can't I choose to pursue things that are at odds with these natural goods that I've been talking about? Can't I pursue, uh, can't I pursue something that is bad for me, given my nature? Yes, I do have the power to make this choice. I have the power to go against nature's direction. And yet, I can't completely escape nature because I can't want anything that I don't take to be fulfilling in some way, and therefore to be good. Again, as St. Thomas says, whatever we desire, we desire under the aspect of good. I said that a moment ago. I am confronted thus with two things that claim to be good but are in conflict. Suppose that on the one hand, we have the natural good of a stable functional family, and on the other hand, we have the alleged good of adultery. Which good should I choose? The only answer can be that I should choose the true good. Analogously, if we are asked to choose between four and five as a sum of two plus two, we should, we should choose the true sum, four, not five. But how do I know what the true good is when there is a conflict between what I happen to want and what is naturally good for me? I have said that the natural good is the true good, but is that always the case? Can there be exceptions? The answer becomes clear once we understand the relationship between ourselves and our nature. There is a sense in which each of us is more than our nature and therefore not reducible to it. I have characteristics that are mine, not because I'm a human being, but because I am this particular human being. My height, my weight, my job, my citizenship, certain choices, certain memories, and so on. But take away my humanity, by which I mean my body and my vegetative, appetitive, and cognitive powers, take all that away, and there is nothing left over that has this weight or height or citizenship, or choices, or memories. Without a body, I couldn't have height or weight. Without a body plus my vegetative and appetitive and cognitive powers, I couldn't have a job or be a citizen. Without my appetitive and cognitive powers, I couldn't have made choices or have memories. I have no self, then, that exists independently of my nature. To be sure, I am unique in a certain manner, but my uniqueness does not and cannot amount to a self that exists apart from my nature. A self that exists apart from my nature is a fiction. But if this is so, then I can't have any true goods that conflict with my natural goods. There's nothing that's good for me, but not good for my nature. My only true goods will just be natural goods. Consequently, in in any conflict between natural goods and other perceived goods, I should always choose natural goods. In the example I mentioned a moment ago, adultery, it can't be a good for me because it is prejudicial to the, to the natural good of the family. Now, the natural good that I should choose will sometimes, in particular circumstances, not be obvious. What I should choose will also depend in part on my own individual characteristics on the specific context in which I live. I must take these into account, too, when I determine what is truly good for me. 
I should never choose what conflicts with the natural good, but the precise form that the natural good will take will sometimes, but not always, be impossible to, to determine a priori, that is, beforehand. Aristotle and St. Thomas would tell us that what we need to make uh, correct judgments about the true good in our concrete circumstances is a virtue they call prudence. The prudent person knows not only what our natural goods are in general, how they are related to each other, but what they are in concrete circumstances. It is clear, for instance, that food is a natural good, but what kinds of food we should eat, how much food we should eat, and when we should eat it aren't always clear. It will depend on the person involved in the context, which includes the kinds of food available in that place and time. Then, of course, there are more important questions that we face, questions about our families, our political communities, education, and religion. How should we discipline our children? How, should we how much should we spend on, natural, on, on national defense? What objects should we prioritize in school curricula? How often should we pray? The prudent person will be the person who will know the answers to these questions. Earlier I said that our nature is a necessary but not sufficient criterion for determining what is truly good for us. From, from what I have just said, we can now say that prudence is another necessary criterion. So figuring out what's, what's naturally good for us fundamentally depends on, on considering our nature, but figuring out what, the natural good, what natural good we should choose in a given circumstance will depend on prudence, right? Right judgment about what's um, about the natural goods we should choose. Even though it will often be impossible to know a priori what natural goods we should choose, Aristotle and St. Thomas would say that there are some things that could never count as natural goods because they just are just mala in se, or evils in themselves. Murder, theft, adultery uh, would be such things. They are always in themselves bad for us as human beings because they are always prejudicial to um, natural goods. But coming back to prudence, what if we ourselves lack it? How will we know how we should live? While we may have a vague idea about what our natural goods are in general, we will not know, not with any certainty at any rate, what particular natural goods to pursue in given situations. This is where, <clears throat> excuse me, this is where stable functional communities play a crucial role. Ideally, our parents are prudent and guide us as children and adolescents and exemplify and teach us prudence. Ideally, our political communities have prudent leaders who formulate appropriate policies and legislation. Religion, too, should be mentioned here. Church teaching, scripture, and the saints exemplify and are sources of prudence. But along with the guidance of prudence, we need to develop virtues that give us the wherewithal to do what prudence, command, what prudence commands. We need, above all, courage, moderation, and justice. This is together with prudence, so those four, right? Prudence, courage, moderation, justice. These virtues, too, we ideally learn from our parents who exemplify and teach them, and from religion, and they are supported by good political policies and legislation. <clears throat> Without the essential communities of the family, the, the political community, and the church, we are lost. And if any of them is wanting, then it will make things all the more difficult for us to develop virtue and find happiness. 
Any country will be in crisis if there is a breakdown in the family or in the political community or in religion. And if there is a breakdown in all three, then we are bad off indeed. Okay, so now I come to the second part, natural law. So we are now in, in a position to talk about natural law. St. Thomas tells us that law is a rule or of, of reason meant to guide our conduct. This understanding of law seems entirely uncontroversial. The laws that we create, we create upon reflection, and they are intended to guide our conduct. Constitutional law, business law, criminal law, and so on are like this. There is nothing to object to here. That is in, in St. Thomas's formulation. But what does St. Thomas mean by natural law? Like any law, it is in part something that we intelligent beings conceive by our reason. But this concept comes from our reflection upon our nature and the goods or ends to which it directs us. Reflecting on our nature, we see how we ought to live. So although we do, in a sense, formulate this law ourselves by our reason, it is a law that is, in an important respect, dictated to us by our nature. If this sounds strange to you, it shouldn't. Structurally speaking, there are all sorts of parallels. Conf consider, for instance, a sculptor like, say, Michelangelo. He has an understanding of how he should go about sculpting the Pietà from what he knows about the nature of marble and the nature of his tools. They dictate to him how he, sh how he must proceed. Or consider the scientists that work at the Large Hadron, Hadron Collider at CERN, that's in, in Switzerland. They have an understanding of how they should conduct their experiments from what they know about the nature of the particles that they deal with and the nature of the equipment they use. These dict dictate to them how they must proceed. Could Michelangelo or the scientists at CERN get things wrong? Yes, they could. But it will be because they have failed to understand something about the nature of what they are working with and what its implications are for what they should do. So what I have said about human nature and the human good already tells us a lot, a lot about what we need to know about St. Thomas's doctrine of natural law. Natural law is our, reason, is our reason guiding our conduct based on our understanding of our nature and the goods it directs us to. But if our nature, as I stipulated a moment ago, is created by God, then we can also say that natural law is from God. It has a divine origin and expresses the divine will. Divine providence, which I also stipulated a moment ago, is just another way of talking about God's rule over the universe. St. Thomas calls this divine rule over the universe the eternal law. And he tells us that natural law is the rational creature's participation in the eternal law. Any law as a rule that guides our conduct has, in one way or another, the purpose of laying an obligation upon us. The obligation may be positive or negative. It may specify what we should or should not do. Or, I'm sorry, it will specify what we should or should not do. So it's laws are either positive or negative, right? They either tell us what we should do or what we should not do. Natural law is no different. As St. Thomas sees it, natural law commands us to pursue the several natural goods that we mentioned earlier. The successful pursuit of these goods requires also that we should refrain from doing certain things, namely things that would threaten our acquisition or accomplishment of natural goods. 
Thus, the precepts of natural law are both positive and negative. We shouldn't think of natural law as any kind of external imposition on us. Remember that it arises and has its force from our own nature, and that we ourselves are nothing apart from our nature. Right? So I, I said a moment ago in the first part of the paper that I, I don't have a self that exists independently of my nature. My self and my nature are completely one, although we can distinguish between them. Therefore, natural law, being based on my nature, is not an imposition on what I call myself. It's very, very deeply rooted in myself, just as my nature is. We can also say, if, if we recognize that natural law ultimately comes from God because our nature does, that what God uh, wants of us is also something that is perfectly cons consistent with what we call our self, since, since our self is something, again, as I said, that is intimately connected, inseparable from our nature. But can we still know, uh, but we can still know a lot about our nature even if we don't believe in God. So atheists, too, can attain some understanding of natural law and its implication for our lives. Obviously, what atheists will have dif difficulty with will be the religious dimension of natural law. However, this won't prevent them, as I have just, as I have just said, from having some understanding of natural law. Right? So if we can understand our nature, we can understand what's good for us, we can understand what natural law directs us toward, what it obliges us to pursue. Right? And that's just from understanding our nature. Whether or not you believe in God, you can have some understanding of your nature as a human being, and so you can have some understanding of the natural law. St. Thomas does not give a detailed account of the hierarchy among the precepts of the natural law, but it is, clear, it is fairly clear that he assumes that there is a hierarchy, and many Thomists likewise oppose this to be the case. Um, so if you remember uh, a moment ago when I was talking about human goods, right, um, the, our, our natural goods, there's a hierarchy among them, right? So there's, there's, a, there, you know, there's the, the preservation of our life, which is in a way at the bottom, but that, but that doesn't mean we should ignore it. No, it's, it's important because without it, we can't pursue the higher goods. So the lower goods need to be pursued for the sake of the higher goods. So if natural law is based on these goods, then there's also going to be a hierarchy in the precepts of natural law, corresponding uh, so the, the, at, at the bottom we have the, the duty pr to preserve our lives. Then we have the duty toward our, our families and political communities. Then we have finally our, our duty toward um, God, toward, toward religion. With respect to natural law, the points I made about prudence and the other virtues can be repeated with just a small adjustment to the terms. The prudent person will be the person who sees how natural law applies in concrete circumstances. Knowledge of natural law is indispensable, without, but without prudence, there is only so far that we can go. And without the virtues of courage, moderation, and justice, it will be hard to live as natural law and prudence oblige us to. It should come as no surprise to you that St. Thomas holds that the laws that we formulate to govern our political communities, what he calls human law, or what we could also called positive law, should be based on natural law, or at least be in harmony with it. The political community is, after all, a human community. 
and what will be good for it will be the things that are good for human beings. By the way, when I talk about political community, you can, um, another term for that is the state. So everything I say about the political community, you can think, you know, this is, I'm talking about the state here, right? So the sort of the, the organized, um, the larger organized human community that has a, a governing structure and has the, the purpose of helping us to, um, to create the conditions in which we can successfully pursue those things that are good for us as human beings. The, the political community is, after all, a human community. Okay. Um, thus, through legislation, the political community should work to create conditions favorable to the pursuit of natural goods, as I was saying. If the family and religion are as important as I have said that they are, then legislation should be favorable to them. But once again, it will be up to prudent persons to determine what that will mean in concrete circumstances. Educational institutions outside the family should assist parents in their obligation to form their children in virtue. Is this best done by public education or private education? It depends on the circumstances. Should religion be, should, should religion be permitted to influence legislation? If God is our supreme natural good, then it would seem that religion should influence legislation. But what, it, but what is the precise form that this influence should take? Again, it will depend on the circumstances, and the, and the person who can make the right decision about it will be the prudent person. Okay, so now we come to natural rights. Finally, right, this is what the paper is about, so finally getting there. Um, so hopefully you've, you've understood the, what natural goods are, um, what the natural law is, and um, from understanding those, you should see how natural rights um, fit in. Without understanding uh, our natural goods and natural law, we can't really understand natural rights, right? Um, they're not something that is, is free-floating. Uh, There's something that has a foundation in, in these other things that I've been talking about. That's why um, I wanted to, to go through them as I have. All right, so natural rights. Um, now, I could just have jumped right into natural rights, rights as I was saying, by ta uh, without talking about human nature or the human good or natural law. Um, but then my account of them would have come across as, as um, quite arbitrary. If we think of natural law as a set of natural obligations that we have, and this is an accurate if not complete statement of what natural law is, then the, state from, then the step from natural law to natural rights is pretty straightforward. Natural rights necessarily follow from natural law. Anyone who holds a natural law doctrine must concede this. So if you accept that there is a natural law in the way that I've been uh, talking about it, then uh, rationally you are, are committed to recognizing that natural law implies certain natural rights. And I'm going to explain why in, in a minute. The 19th century Dominican priest and Thomas, Tomaso Zigliara, who was an important and influential advisor to Pope Leo XIII, explains the relationship between natural law and natural rights in this way. Insofar as we have the obligation from natural law to pursue certain goods, we have the right to pursue those goods. The right is necessitated by the obligation. 
This derivation of natural rights from the obligation of natural law has become standard among modern Thomist proponents of natural law. The reasoning that supports it is not hard to explain. So let's try to think through it here. Suppose that I am in the position to give you orders, uh, which I am not, I'm just a civilian. Um, suppose I am. Well, I suppose if I were president, but I'm not president, but anyways. <laughs> suppose I am in the position to give you orders. Suppose I tell you, do X. And as you proceed to carry out my order, I then tell you, you are not permitted to do X. Naturally, you will want to know whether I have changed my mind since I am now telling you that you cannot do what I've ordered you to do. I tell you that I have not changed my mind, and I say, I order you to do X, but I will not permit you to do it. Clearly, it is unreasonable for me to order you to do something that I will not permit you to do. If I am going to behave reasonably in giving you an order, I will also permit you to carry out my order. Permitting you to carry out the order is reasonably due to you. It is your right in these circumstances. What is also reasonably due to you and is your right is anything you need to carry out that order. That is, any necessary, any necessary means that you require to do X. But there is another related way that we can think about this. St. Thomas says that the willing of an end is also the willing of the means to the end, and this makes perfect sense. If I truly want to do X or want you to do X, and that disposition is not a, merely, a mere velleity in me, if it's not just a wish, then I will also um, will whatever it is that can, that can bring about X. Reasonably willing for you to do X necessarily implies that I do not prevent you from doing it. And that means that in willing you to do X, I owe it to you to permit you to do it. You have a right to do it. If this line of thought is correct, then if I am obligated by natural law to pursue some good, it is naturally due to me. I have a natural right to be permitted to pursue that good into whatever means I need to pursue it. So this, this is, this is the, the whole point here, right? So by natural law, we have an obligation to pursue certain goods. And again, remember that that is not something that's imposed on, off it, on, on us. It comes from our nature, right? So natural law obliges us to pursue certain goods. Well, if we're obliged to pursue something, we have the right to pursue it. And if we have a natural obligation to pursue something, we have a natural right to it. <clears throat> if the natural law is from God, as I have argued, then the natural rights derived from it will also be from God. And as you might have already inferred, just as there is a hierarchy among natural goods, which generates a hierarchy, hierarchy among natural law precepts, there is also a hierarchy of natural rights. Moreover, just as what is lower in the hierarchies of natural goods and natural law precepts is ordered to what is higher, so the rights at the lower end of the hierarchy of natural rights are ordered to those at the higher end. Prudence will be essential in, in determining the precise claims that I can make about my natural rights and those of others. And the, and the other virtues will help me to do what prudence commands about my own rights and others', right, others rights. 
Granted that we have natural rights, can we say with any specificity what they are? I believe we can. I would suggest that among our natural rights are the following five. So I'm going to give you a list of five things that I think are, this is not an exhaustive list, but I think these are definitely um, among our natural rights. First of all, the right to preserve our lives. Now remember there's also a hierarchy here, so I'm going to start with the low end and, and go up to the high end. The right to preserve our lives. The right to form and maintain stable functional communities, first of all families and political communities. The right to pursue truth. The right to cultivate religion. The right to cultivate the virtues we need to fulfill our obligations according to natural law. Let me stress that I do not claim that this is a complete list, as I, as I just said. I do not think, however, that it, st um, that it states our most, I'm sorry, I do think, however, that it states our most essential rights. You may notice that I do not mention freedom anywhere on this list. It seems to me that there is no need to mention it because it is clearly implied by any right. If I have a right to do, demand, or possess something, that necessarily implies that I have the freedom to do, demand, or to possess it, right? So these natural rights that I've listed imply that we have a freedom to pursue these rights so it, or, or to pursue the, the, the goods that these, we have rights to. So on this concept of freedom, freedom isn't just some abstract thing um, that we should all want and we all have a right to. We have a right to the freedom to pursue what is good for us. <clears throat> Following Jacques Maritain, who was a, a 20th century uh, French philosopher, also a, um, a student um, of St. Thomas Aquinas, of course, um, living many centuries after St. Thomas. Following Jacques Maritain, I believe that there is a distinction to be made between the possession of a right and its exercise. This distinction seems undeniable. Consider the following. Although I have the natural right to form and maintain a, a stable functional family, I am not at this moment exercising that right. At the moment, I'm giving a talk. right? So I, I have a right in general to form a stable, stable functional family because that's a human good, but that doesn't mean that I'm, I'm always necessarily exercising that right. I'm not exercising it right now, right? Right now I'm giving a talk. So there's, there's, there's a distinction that we can make between having or possessing a right and actually exercising that right. Um, suppose I never find the right woman to marry. Well, then I will never exercise that right. Although I've always had it, I was never in a position where I could exercise it, but it was still, in a sense, there, right, insofar as um, stable functional families are, are human goods. But can something count as a right if its exercise is subject to certain conditions? And I want to say that there are, I, I'm, as I've just explained now, that there are conditions to the exercise of our right, right, um, our rights. So if, if the good is not available for me, if, if it's not there, if I can't find um, the right woman to marry, then I will never exercise it. So I can have a right, but the conditions may never be propitious for me to exercise that right. Uh, so let me come back again to this question, but can something count as a right if its exercise is subject to certain conditions? If you were to recall at the beginning of this paper, I defined a right as the license to do, to, de to demand, or to possess something. 
This is a standard way that philosophers and jurists define a right, and it matches up with how we generally use the term. But notice that it is not part of this definition that the exercise of a right cannot be subject to any conditions. In other words, this definition of a right is perfectly compatible with the view that there are conditions uh, on the exercise of a right. Um, Supposing that the exercise of natural rights is subject to certain conditions, can the rights themselves ever be taken away from us? <clears throat> it seems to me that the answer to this question must be no. We have natural rights by virtue of being human beings. You could, do no, you could no more take away our natural rights than you could take a, make it the case um, that three is divisible, isn't divisible by three. So I believe that we can say that our natural rights are inalienable. Okay, so the, the point again is that there's, there's a distinction between having a right and exercising it. We have right, certain rights just by virtue of being human beings. Okay, so as, as long as we're human beings, we have those rights. Um, so in that sense, they're inalienable. However, that doesn't mean that we will always be in a situation where we can exercise those rights. But obviously saying this is not at all uh, to say that we must respect every claim that something is a natural right. Do I have a natural right to say whatever I wish? I do not. It is harmful to the natural good of stable functional communities to defame other people, for example. And what I have said about the conditions on the exercise of our natural rights also suggests that we can, in many cases, dispute what counts as a legitimate exercise of an authentic natural right. So to say that we have natural rights and to say, give a list of what they are, isn't to say that there can't be disputes about how those rights can be exercised in a given context, right? So that, we haven't decided anything about that at all. We've just said, we have these rights, they're inalienable, Sometimes you can exercise them, sometimes we can't. What will count as an authentic exercise of it in a given, in a given context? That can often be a matter of dispute. <clears throat> okay, so part you've all been waiting for, conclusion. If you already believe in natural rights, I hope that what I have said has strengthened that belief. If you did not already believe in natural rights, I hope that what I have said has given you second thoughts. Now, as I said in the, at the beginning, um, in a previous version of this talk, it was even longer, I, there was another section in which I, I considered certain objections and then tried to respond to those objections. But um, in order to keep this, or make this a little bit shorter, um, I decided to take that, that section out and I would be very happy if you have objections or questions or whatever to respond to them um, during the, the Q&A. So thank you very much for your attention. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith. 
and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.